0: Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them and open to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The text of the scripture is also printed for you in the bulletins. But if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to take them out. We'll be doing a little bit of flipping around this morning, but just a little bit. We're primarily going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Galatians three, fifteen through 22. Where we pick up... The scripture today is where we left off last week in the middle of Paul's argument where he's appealing to the Old Testament evidence to ground his claim to the Galatian churches that salvation is only by grace, not by works of the law. It's only by grace alone, not by any combination of our works and faith in Christ together. It is only faith in Christ alone that is completely sufficient for all of our needs and completely sufficient for the salvation of all who would look to him in Christ. He began that argument, proving it from the Old Testament last week, and he's going to continue today. So let me ask, as is our custom here, if you're able, will you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word given to us for our edification and for our benefit and for our joy, for our security in Christ, for our comfort in him. For the comfort of our conscience, Lord, that we might rest and be assured of our salvation and our status in Christ. We pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts that it might accomplish these purposes for which you have sent it. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. The book of Galatians, as a whole, this argument that Paul is advancing. Against these false teachers in the Galatian church, this letter that Paul writes, I think it shows us nothing if it does not show us the passion that Paul has for the purity of the gospel, the passion that he has for true doctrine, for solid teaching, for biblical foundations, and for the glory of Christ. He is passionate to see the gospel of Jesus's grace be pure in the church for the good of the church. And if we were to ask now that we're about halfway through this letter, for we to ask where does this passion come from that Paul has for the gospel, I think there's only one place for us to look and that would be in Acts chapter 9. Paul was an unbeliever, he was Jewish by heritage, he was going about his ordinary everyday business, which at the time his ordinary business was persecuting the church, but he was an unbeliever like so many other unbelievers, going about his business when Jesus changed his life forever, when the glory of Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road, we know this story in such overwhelming glory that it knocked him off his horse and it left him blind and with no appetite for three days. The scripture says he could not see for three days and he neither ate nor drank for three days after this encounter with the living Christ. What happened to Paul on that that road to Damascus, we would love to have more details about it in the scripture, but this is what we know, that Christ simply overwhelmed him with this display of his glory. That Christ, the living one, the Alpha and the Omega, who was and is and is to come, appeared to Paul in such a way that Paul's life would never be the same. He revealed himself to Paul in his glory and overwhelmed Paul such that his life changed at a complete 180 for the rest of his life, and he became passionate now about the mission of Christ, which is to spread the glory of Christ into every last nook and cranny of our world. Until, indeed, as we've said already this morning, until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth. On multiple occasions in the book of Acts, when, when Paul was asked to explain how it was that he became who he was, he simply says that, that this is his story. He was going to Damascus, and he was knocked over by the vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. And he hadn't been the same ever since. Paul himself appeals to that story of his conversion to explain who he was. Because when your soul beholds the all-encompassing glory of Christ in all of its beauty and in all of its radiance, it changes you in such a way that you're never the same. It was true for Paul and it's true for anyone else today. You can't stay the same person you were before. Paul is now captured by the desire to fight for the glory of Christ rather than to destroy it. Jared Wilson says this, In his book, Four Pastors, he says, The pastor who will see God's glory is the pastor who then pursues God's glory to the exclusion of everything else. The pastor who sees God's glory is then the pastor who will pursue God's glory to the exclusion of everything else. It was true for Paul, I believe it's true for pastors, and I believe it's true for all of us, that the person who catches that glimpse of the glory of Christ will then be that person who who then pursues the glory of Christ to the exclusion of everything else. Paul had beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and it would and it left an indelible imprint on his soul such that now he pursued the glory of Christ in all things. And what we have in the book of Galatians is part of Paul's pursuit of the glory of Christ, part of his fighting for the purity of that glory in the churches because as we've said false teachers have come into these churches that he planted, and and the gospel is now threatened, and Paul is passionate for the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so he writes this letter in which his, his passion comes through over and over as he deals with these Gentiles, fighting for the purity of the glory of Christ in the gospel to the exclusion of everything else. When he sees his churches belittling the glory of Christ, by trying to claim for themselves some of the glory that is due only to Christ in salvation, by attributing it to their works, by attributing it to good works done by them, keeping the law, Paul sees that they are belittling the glory of Christ. And so he is passionate to uphold it. What we see in this passage, Paul's continuing his argument here from the Old Testament, and he says two main things. He's appealing again to help us see the glory of Christ in all of Scripture, and he's going to show us That Christ is before the law and Christ is after the law. Christ is before the law and Christ is after the law. First, Christ is before the law. Verses 15 through 18 give us a picture of this. Now, we know from many places that Paul's a very astute theologian. We know that much to be true. But Paul's not only an astute theologian, I think he shows in his letters that he's also a very sensitive pastor as he deals with believers in his churches. He's a theologian. He's also a pastor. And so here in verse 15, in the middle of what can be a bit of a daunting section of scripture here, the the theological argument is pretty relentless in its pace. But here in verse 15, he he lets up for just a moment. Look what he says. To give a human example, brothers. So he's going to slow down the pace of his theological argument for a moment to help us understand what he's saying, to help us by means of a human example. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now this is Paul's human example that he gives for our sakes. This is not in this particular verse. This is not deep, esoteric theology way down in a systematic theology textbook. He's giving us an illustration here. He's taking something from ordinary, everyday life and, and setting this before us to say this, this is the way it is. And what he says is, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it. Or adds to it once it has been ratified. And I think we recognize that that's true. That's just the way it is. Even with human agreements, human contracts, human testaments, covenants, contracts, whatever they may be, even with a human agreement, once it's been made, once it's been signed and sealed and delivered, we don't go back then and change the terms of the contract. So even with a basic human contract, you can have all the debate and all the vigorous dialogue you want. You can go back and forth on the terms, but... We all recognize that once you sign on the dotted line at the bottom, at that point, the debate stops. The covenant has been ratified. The contract has been signed. You don't continue to add or to change what you've already made. It's true with the last will and testament. When somebody makes out their will and somebody makes out their last (coughs) testament of what they want to happen to all of their things and their wishes and their desires for after their passing and they sign that and they seal it, we recognize that there's some sanctity to that And most of us, hopefully, would not dare after that person's passing to go back and try to make changes to it. We honor that. That's even a human contract made by fallible human beings who have fallible wisdom and fallible foresight. And yet still, we honor their wishes because it's been ratified. It's been agreed upon. Or again, for the kids, what's the most solemn form of an agreement that you can make? Not the pinky swear. You, know, you can make all the verbal agreements you want, but once you pinky swear with somebody on something, well, that deal is done, isn't it? I mean, you don't go back on your word once you've pinky sworn on something. That is that is perhaps the highest level of human agreement that we can make—the pinky swear. And even when it's just fallible humans who do it, even if they're kids who do it, we recognize that an agreement has now been ratified, and you don't go back, you don't make changes, you don't annul it. It's done. What's done is done. And so now, here Paul is saying this. He's saying, if we look at our human agreements, and that's how seriously we take our human agreements, even though they're made by fallible human beings, how much more, when an agreement has been made and signed and sealed and pinky-sworn on by God, how much more will he not go back and change his mind? But will he take that very seriously once it has been ratified? And so the covenant that he's referring to here is God's covenant that he made with Abraham. Now, if you've got your Bibles, look at Genesis 15. This is where God ratifies, seals his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, starting in verse 7. This is God's action formally ratifying his covenant promises to Abraham. This is where he signs on the dotted line. Now, we find God dealing with Abraham over a span of 10, 11, 12 chapters in Genesis, and there's promises scattered throughout, but... Here in chapter 15, this is where the deal goes down. This is where he signs on the dotted line. And I'm going to read here a a large chunk of the verses, starting in, in verse 7 of Genesis 15. And he said to him, that is, the Lord said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Now, this is a, an admittedly strange sort of ceremony. But nevertheless, this is how, in that day, in the ancient Near East, covenants were ratified, or agreements were ratified. They had not discovered the pinky swear yet, so this is what they did instead. They took animals, and they cut them in half. This this is a more disgusting ceremony. They cut them in half, and they made two lines, half the animals on one side, and the other half of those same animals on the other side. And then when two people wanted to enter into a contract with each other, they would each walk between the pieces of those animals. And the idea of that ceremony was that each person was saying, if I do not uphold my side of this bargain, let me become like these animals are. Let, let the penalty that has fallen on these animals of being divided in two, let that fall on me if I don't hold up my end of this bargain. It was a serious way of entering into a contract or a covenant. In fact, The Hebrew word for entering into a covenant was to cut a covenant. They they didn't say you sign or agree to or shake on. They said let's cut a covenant. And that was referring to these animals that they literally cut them in half. But notice what is different about the way God agrees to this covenant with Abraham. It starts the same. They take the animals. God gives him the instructions. He takes the exact animals and they line them up on either half. But then see what happens Abraham is fast asleep during this covenant. And what we see is that the Lord himself, in these symbols of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, the Lord himself passes between the pieces, and Abraham does not. But yet the Lord says, now I've made my covenant with you. And that is so important for us, because what that means is that all of the responsibility of this covenant falls on God alone. God alone is taking this oath on himself to say, I will keep my end of the bargain in this covenant. I will uphold my promises. And if I do not, then he would be like those animals. But Abraham had no responsibility in it. This is why we refer to this as an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant. There were no conditions given to Abram that he had to obey. It was God alone who ratified this covenant. And so this is what we see. Now, the covenant has been ratified. It's been signed on. It's been sealed. It's been delivered. And Paul is saying, listen, at this point, even when a, once a covenant has been ratified, no one goes back and annuls it. No one goes back and adds to it. It's good. It's done. We cannot any longer change the terms of the covenant. Man cannot change it. God cannot change it because God, who is more faithful and more trustworthy than man, has given his word. And now in Galatians... 3, 16 and 17, he wants us to notice two things, especially notice two things about this covenant. He wants us to notice, first, who the promises were made to, and second, when they were made. He wants us to notice who these promises were made to, and second, when they were made. Notice, who were these promises made to? Look at verse 16 in Galatians 3. It's not a trick question, but it is tricky. Galatians 3, verse 16, Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham so far so good and to his offspring. And it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but to offspring who is referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now this is easy enough to check in the Old Testament we can look back throughout Genesis at the promises that God makes to Abraham. We can see Genesis 13:15. God says, "For all the land you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever." Genesis 17:8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. Genesis 22.18 And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So we can go back and see this is true. God makes promises. They're not only to Abraham. They are to Abraham and to his offspring. They were not for Abraham alone. They were for Abraham and Abraham's offspring. Now, when we think about the word offspring. The word offspring is one of those kind of funny grammatical words, kind of like sheep, or moose, or cattle, or fruit. It's a collective plural. We don't, we don't add an S when we're referring to many. We, we don't say, look at all the sheeps. We, we can say one sheep or many sheep, one moose or many moose. It, it incorporates all of them, and offspring is the same thing. It has this ambiguity in it. We can say there is one offspring or there are many offspring. It's the same way in Hebrew. It's the same way in Greek. It's the same way in English. And so there's an ambiguity there that Paul, he picks up on this, that it says offspring. Well, that could be referring to all of Abraham's offspring. Father Abraham had many sons. He had many offspring. Or it could be equally referring to one offspring. Say, Isaac. Pick one. It could be referring to many or it could be referring to one. And this is what Paul says. Verse 16, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Galatians 3, he writes that it's referring to one And the one offspring that it's referring to is Christ. That God is making promises here, and he's making them to Abraham and to Jesus Christ. He's saying, To you and to Jesus I will give this land. Through you and through Jesus will all nations of the earth be blessed. That's how we could read these promises in Genesis. Because Paul says God is making promises there to Jesus Christ, even though it's some many, many hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Nevertheless, We could say the gospel is being proclaimed. God is preaching to his people. He's making promises that will only come to fulfillment through Jesus. And so this is is hugely important. We need to hear what he's saying here. When God is making these promises to Abraham, he's making promises to Christ. Look at verse 19 in Galatians 3. We'll just anticipate what this verse says when it says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So he's saying there that there was, they were waiting for the offspring to come to whom those promises had been made. He's going to tell us more about that verse in a moment, but he's saying this. When he was promising that Abraham and his offspring would inherit the land, that when the Israelites moved into Canaan, that was only a dim foreshadowing of the fulfillment of that promise. When he says, in your offspring shall all nations be blessed, the only reason a promise like that can be fulfilled at all is because the offspring of Abraham is Christ. And in Christ, all nations of the earth are indeed blessed. The blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles by the promises made to Christ. The promise is made to Christ, and in Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so here at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, where God is making the promises, at the very beginning of the story, it seems like it's only barely beginning, and yet already God is proclaiming this message, that only in Christ will all nations of the earth be blessed and redeemed through his Son. And so Paul's continuing his argument here about the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament all about? What was the Old Testament preaching and proclaiming? He's saying there is one story for the whole Bible, and it's all about Christ saying there's not two stories, there's not the Old Testament story that's about the law, and then there's the, Old, the New Testament story about Christ. He's saying there is one story that encompasses both of them, and it's the story of Jesus Christ. And even in the promises to Abraham, God was anticipating the blessing of Christ. Beginning to end, the Bible is all about Jesus. And now in verse 17, he's going to drive this point home even more when he answers the second question, First question, who were the promises to? The second question, when were the promises made? Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a promise previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's telling us here, when were the promises made? They were made 430 years before the law had even been given. God already made his promises to Abraham and to Christ. He had already ratified them. He had already signed on the dotted line. There was no going back to change them afterwards, much less 430 years afterwards when the law was given. The promises stood on their own. And so here's these false teachers, these Judaizers, who are coming in and they see themselves as those who are standing up for the tradition. They see themselves as standing for the law, for the for the, for the, uh Promises of the fathers for all of the patriarchs, for all that was good and true and noble in the world. And they say, Paul, preaching Jesus, is some Johnny come lately. Paul is turning this around. He says, No, no, God was giving promises to Christ about blessing the nations 430 years before the law had ever been given. It is the law who was the Johnny come lately in this scheme. The promise through Christ existed far, far earlier. When was the promise given? It was given 430 years before the law. Now, when we read the law, if we were to turn to Exodus, and we won't do this this morning, but the law itself recognizes this. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? Exodus 20, verse 2, what we call the preamble to the Ten Commandments. God introduces himself this way. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See what he says, even as he's introducing the law that he's about to give, he says, I am already your God. We are already in covenant relationship. I have already redeemed you. I have already saved you from the house of slavery. I've already brought you to myself. Referring to what he's done in the Passover. Now, we only have to look at the structure of the book of Exodus itself. Where is Passover? It's in chapter 12 of Exodus. With all of its rich foreshadowing of the work of Christ where the people of Israel were saved from their oppression by the blood of the lamb that they killed and sacrificed and put on their doorpost and so God's uh, justice enforcing avenging angel came over the camp and spared all those who had put their faith in the blood of a lamb. All of that rich foreshadowing of the work of Christ that's one of the, the notable primary Old Testament pictures of salvation that is given to us. And that's in chapter 12. God doesn't give any law to them until chapter 20. And so even in Exodus itself, we see he's already saved his people. He's already redeemed them through the blood of the Lamb. And it's only after that that he begins to give them law. He says, I am your God. You are my people. He has defeated their enemies. He has rescued them from slavery. And so even as we begin to read the law, we recognize he can't possibly be putting this law in place now as a way for the people to earn their standing with God because he's just said, you already have standing with me. I am the Lord, your God, who has rescued you. They are already in loving relationship and it's already been ratified. It's already been shaken on. So, now this might seem like this is a neat little historical, theological, biblical point that Paul is making and and good for him. He's quite clever for recognizing this. But remember, he's making this point for us. He's pointing us to the scriptures for our sake, for our benefit. This is for you. This is for the Christian who is prone to doubt, whose conscience is prone to accuse him, to say to him or to her, Look at yourself. How could God love you? I mean, are you really even saved? If you would do that, if your conscience accuses you in those ways, this historical, theological truth is for you. The promise had already been given. The relationship had already been ratified. He can no longer hold up the law before them as a standard for their relationship. This is for those who are prone to wander. This is for all of us when when we mess up on those bad days, when we give in to temptation again, when we fail to have victory over our sin again. When these things happen, when our consciences accuse us, when we struggle with doubt and with remorse this is for us this is good news in fact Martin Luther suggests that you can use words like this to preach the gospel to yourself to your own conscience when you've sinned he says use these words he says when your consciences accuse you say lady law you come at the wrong time for you come too late for the promise has come 430 years before you and I rest in that Since Christ has now been revealed and given to me, I live in him who is my righteousness. So on those days when you give in to temptation, we all have those days. When it seems like sin is more powerful, when it seems like you're not making progress, just speak to your conscience and say, Lady Law, you come too late. I do not judge myself by my own ability to obey. I do not judge my position with God by my behavior, by my obedience to works of the law because the promise was given 430 years earlier and i rest in that i rest in the promise that was given to jesus christ that he and he alone is my righteousness the law cannot accuse us paul is giving us powerful ammunition against the evil one the evil one will so often come to us and he will hold up the law before our eyes and he will say look consider your own righteousness consider your obedience or lack thereof, consider your behavior, consider yourself. And we need simply to say to it, I do not consider that. I hold up merely the promise that righteousness is by faith in Christ. And I consider the righteousness of Christ to be my own. I consider the obedience of Christ. I consider the person of Christ. I don't look to myself. I look to Christ because verse 18 says, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We don't ever look to the law to receive what only can be received by faith in the promise. We look to Christ every day. And when the law accuses, we look to the righteousness of Christ. And we say, that is mine. That is my righteousness. That is my standing before God. For I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Paul would have us to see, when was the promise given? When was the gospel being preached? 430 years before the law was given. How can the law then be given as an addition or an annulment to a promise once delivered? He says, Jesus Christ is before the law. Not only is Christ before the law, he's going to show us in verses 19 through 22, Christ is after the law. Christ is before the law. Christ is after the law. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? Now, this is a pretty natural question. With all that he has said already, trying to remove the law as the standard of righteousness from us, it's a natural question. In fact, even in, in Romans this question comes up after he's explained the gospel. He deals with the same question, why then the law? When he preaches the gospel in Acts, Paul's accused of speaking against the law. Every time we cling to the gospel, believe the gospel, proclaim the goodness of God given to us freely in the gospel, it it seems like it's always uh, logical then that we say, okay, we need to think about the law. Where does the law fit in? Because we often get off on the wrong foot in these discussions when we assume that the two are at odds with one another, when we assume that they are contrary, when we assume that law and gospel are two opposite ways of gaining God's favor that we can think about. And he says... In verse 21 he says, is the law contrary to the promises? Is that how we think about them? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. So he's saying, they're not contrary because they don't do the same thing. Only the gospel, the promise, gives life. Law does not give life. So they can't be contrary. They can't be in opposition to one another but that's to get briefly ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> in these verses, 19 through 22, Paul tells us the purpose of the law, the time frame of the law, the goal of the law. The purpose, the time frame, and the goal of the law. The purpose of the law is in verse 19. He says, why then the law? Again, if it's not, it was never given in order to be a means of salvation. It was never given in order to earn our standing with God. He says, why Why then the law? Why was it given? What's the reason? He says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. One theologian says it this way, The law was given in order to make sin become transgression. In other words, he recognizes that there was already sin, people were already behaving badly, but apart from the standard, apart from a law being given by God, Sin was not recognized for what it was. It was not recognized to be transgression against a holy God. There was already sin, but it was not yet seen in its relationship to God. And it was the job of the law to show our sin for what it really is, that it's not just disagreeable behavior, but that it's an offense against God. Now, I think about this point fairly regularly in everyday life, believe it or not. Most of the time, when I'm driving down Mason Avenue in Northridge... Some of you might know the place. There's a spot on Mason Avenue in Northridge where the police have installed a permanent installation of a radar gun with one of these electronic screens that tells you how fast you're going. I know there's multiple of these around, but I I often go by this one on Mason. You know, and so you're driving down the road and it tells you, ah, I'm going 42 miles an hour. But, you know, that's nice and all, but the problem is that nowhere, anywhere near that radar installation is there a speed limit sign. Not, not for at least a half mile before or a half mile after. There is no speed limit sign. So it's giving me this piece of information. Ah, I'm going 42 miles an hour. But I don't know if the speed limit is 35 or 45 or 55 or 65. I have no context in which to set my speed. So I know what I am doing, but I have no idea whether or not my speed is an offense against the city of Los Angeles or not. Because I don't have the law to contextualize my own behavior. And Paul is saying that's how everyone was before the law was given. We knew what we were doing, but we did not yet know the standard that God had put in place. We didn't know if our behavior was an affront to the holiness of God. And so the law is given to help us know our sin. Again, one theologian says this way, Satan would have you use the law to prove yourself holy. God gave the law in order to prove that you're sinners. Satan would have you use it to prove your own righteousness. Paul says exactly the opposite. He gave it because of transgressions. He gave it to help us know our own sin. That's the purpose of the law. What's the time frame of the law? Again, verse 19 continues, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. We said before that the law is a little bit like a a divine... MRI machine. It can diagnose our condition, but it does not have the power to cure. It shows us our sin, but the law itself does not forgive our sin. And so in this way, Paul says, the law is a preparation for Christ. It was given in this interim period where the promises had been made to Abraham and to Christ, but Christ had not yet come. The one to whom those promises had been made had not fulfilled them, and so a law was given in the interim to prepare us for Christ, to diagnose our condition help us to know our sins so that when that one came, we would be prepared. So that when he came, we would be ready to embrace him by faith. We'll see a little bit more later in the chapter. The end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, where the law is described as a tutor for children. That prepares them for maturity. It prepares them for adulthood. That's what the law is doing here. Preparing the people of God. Helping us to know our condition to be sensible about our sins, so that when the Savior comes, we are ready for him. Now look at the goal of the law. We've seen the, the purpose, the time frame. Now the goal of the law is in verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice again, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, In order that, for this reason, why is the scripture imprisoning everything under sin? So that promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin, to condemn us for our sin. But the idea is not that it leaves us in condemnation. The law is not competition for the gospel, it's a servant of the gospel. It's designed to serve those who would believe in Jesus Christ. And so, if it were able to give life, it would have been a competitor, but it cannot give life. It shows us our sin, it imprisons our sin, but it does this for a reason. God has a good purpose in all of that, and his purpose is that it might then take us by the hand and sweetly lead us to Christ, in whom we find forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself says he is the end of the law, he is the fulfillment of the law. When the law does its work in us, it is leading us and preparing us for Christ. The law not only diagnoses our sin, but it then gives us a referral to go see Jesus and to find forgiveness for our sin. Again, Luther says the same thing. He says, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. It shows them their sin that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to Christ. The law shows us our transgression. It lets us know our our helplessness and our weakness in ourselves with a purpose in mind in order that it might sweetly lead us to Christ. We remember again the analogy of the MRI machine. Now that MRI machine is meant to diagnose. The machine itself cannot cure. But Think of the grander purpose of the MRI machine. Why do we have them? It's to lead to life. It's to lead to cures. It's to lead to health. The machine itself can't cure you. It can't give you health. But that's the purpose in diagnosing a disease is so that then you can go find a cure, so that you can go find health and life somewhere else, so that people might live. And so it is with the law. God gave the law in order to diagnose, to show us our sin, to make sin, to become transgression, to help us feel the weight of our own unrighteousness. But it's not going to leave us there in condemnation, the goal of giving it, was that we might then go find life in Christ. Was that we might throw ourselves on him who has life in himself and that we might believe this was God's plan from the very beginning to glorify Christ in the salvation of all who would believe in him. And to do this, he had to give the law to condemn our sin, to make us to know our transgression. So where does that leave all of us? Where does that leave us for... The unbeliever, for those who have not yet gone to Christ, they are still in condemnation. But for the believer, Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law shows us our sin, but but then we go to Christ, in whom we have salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And for us now as believers in Christ, now the law is our friend and our servant in helping us to treasure Christ. Now we can begin to understand what David means when he says, Oh, how I love your law. Who would ever love an MRI machine? Who would ever love something that shows us our sinful condition, that shows us our transgressions? But for the believer, the law no longer brings condemnation. It cannot do that. Instead, it shows us the glory of Christ. It shows us, as it sheds light on our sin, it helps us to think more highly of the one who paid our debt as it shows us how far we fall short, it displays the perfections of Christ and the holiness of Christ, the one who never once sinned, who never once stumbled, who never once gave in to temptation. And so this is the great paradox of the gospel. For those who would rely on the law, it condemns them. But for those who do not rely on the law, but only rely on Christ, the law becomes our friend. it humbly serves us for the glory of Christ. If we look to the law for salvation, we will find condemnation. But if we look to Christ for salvation, we'll find in the law a great servant of ours, a great friend of ours to help us to understand our salvation, to help us to make the most of it, to help us appreciate the glory and the beauty and the weight of what Christ has done for us at the cross, to help us to know his glory. And in so doing, help us to catch that glimpse that Paul got to see at the cross the fullness of the glory and the holiness of God, the mercy and his grace displayed for us that he who did not spare his only son, he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things to open our eyes to the beauty of our Savior, to help us to love him with all of our hearts, to help us to enjoy him, to treasure him as that pearl of great price that we have found? That's the purpose for which God has given the law, not to save, but to to lift our eyes to Christ and to love him with all of our hearts. Church, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word given to us through the letter to the Galatians. Father, we thank you for your spirit that directs your word like arrows finely trained on our hearts, that we might not look to ourselves, but that we might look only to our Savior, Jesus Christ and that in looking to him we might look and find life, that we might find peace, that we might find joy, that we might find rest, that we might find comfort for our poor consciences, always accused by the law. Father, we pray that you will build us up, strengthen us through your word, we pray, for it's in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together, let's take our bulletins and sing our song of reflection as worship to the Lord. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's sing together to the Lord.